Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is Chris Coombs, the COO of Innovator Industrial Services. Chris supports the company mission by transforming Innovator's vision into actionable steps that create traction towards realizing their vision. Chris also serves as the technical director, offering extensive knowledge of Innovator's service lines while ensuring that work done on each project meets and exceeds regulatory compliance for both Innovator and their customers. In 2006, Chris began his career after graduating from a technical college in Newfoundland. Newfoundland is a province up in Canada. Chris worked in the Alberta in the oil and gas industry, advanced into engineering and designing engineered pressure enclosures, and obtaining his professional technologist designation through ASCT. Chris later transferred to New Brunswick, working as an operations manager, gaining experience on various service lines in the specialty maintenance industry. After two years, his role as an operations manager ended when the company closed. Chris returned to Edmonton, where he eventually received the call to perform work in his home province of Newfoundland. This call would be the start of a career at Innovator, where he's continued to grow himself and the company for eight years. Chris, together with his wife, Stephanie, have two young boys, Clark and Brady. Chris enjoys taking his family to their weekend campsite where the boys can play and enjoy outdoor fun. When not enjoying the outdoors with his family, Chris can be found playing men's league hockey or playing golf. Uh, Chris is also one of the members of the COO Alliance. So Chris, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to um, good to be on. Now, just before we we actually started live, you mentioned that you first heard about the COO Alliance, which you joined recently um, through the podcast. Can you kind of give us a, a bit of an update on that? I sure can. So my CEO um, first sent me a link to the podcast, and it was a very short message. It was something like, "Hey, I think you would find some value in this. You should listen." So that day, I subscribed and. That was probably two years ago. Uh, I've been a subscriber ever since. And that was definitely for me the, the starting point to my journey or towards the COO Alliance. So it was very helpful. Awesome. Any, um, any episodes stand out for you? Do you remember any of them? You know, it, it's actually one of the, I think it was one of the first episodes. And not that it was more impactful than some of the others. It was just so unique that I believe it was um, had to do with the Boston Red Sox organization. I think it was a vice president of sales or business development, something like that. Yeah, and it the, was just getting a perspective from an area where I would never get a perspective in, in that sense, like a major sports organization. And that was one of the ones that really stood out to me. Yeah, that was an early one. That was probably in the first 30 or so. It was the Cleveland Indians was the oh, sorry. Uh, yes, was that episode. Right. And it was, yeah. yeah, it was totally random. I was, when, when I got introduced to them as well, the second in command for the Cleveland Indians, I started kind of laughing to myself thinking of how ridiculous to me it seemed that I was getting to interview somebody at a level like that, you know, running an organization like that. It just seemed like I was kind of out of my, um, out of my element a little bit, but it was a really interesting episode too. I enjoyed it. It was episode number 43. So yeah, that was pretty early on because we're at like yeah. one 140 right now. So, so tell us a little bit about Innovator. What exactly do you guys do? Um, I, I will do that. But before I do that, I'm going to save <laughs> you. Um, I'm going to save you from whatever on the off chance that you have some listeners in Newfoundland. I'm going to, I'm going to help you keep them through pronunciation of the province. Okay. So you say you go, it's Newfoundland. So you stress the land and you go through Newfoundland really quick. So Newfoundland. So Newfoundland. There you go. 
That'll, when you, Thank you. If, if, yeah, that, that'll save you if you have any if you have any listeners that'll keep them. Well, th- thank you for saving me. I've officially been screeched in as well, so we can explain what that is too. Some some of the listeners can understand what that one is. Okay, if, if we want to go there, yeah. So the <laughs> screech in um, to become, I guess, what we'd say an honorary Newfoundlander involves. Uh, we won't go through the whole process, but it involves reciting some Newfoundland slang, um, which there's a lot of. It involves kissing a codfish and taking a, a shot of, of rum, which we refer to, or it's branded a screech. Yep, that was it. It was on some some pretty famous street in St. John's, and I I kissed this frozen cod and definitely drank the screech and definitely had to recite some poems. So I was definitely yeah. pre- pre-hammered when I did it as well. <laughs> <laughs> it was a fun night. That's so, awesome. So- yeah, tell us about Innovator. Sure thing. So Innovator, um, Innovator Industrial Services were a specialty maintenance service company in the oil and gas sector. And, and not just oil and gas, really petrochemical facilities is where we focus. And when we refer to specialty maintenance, it's a, it's a company where you have a, there's a high level of trades people in, in our business. So we have pipe fitter trades, machinist trades, electricians, um, various various trades. And there's maintenance performed at these facilities. A lot of that maintenance is general maintenance performed by an end user, an owner operator, or a general contractor. And then there's a maintenance that's a step above. It usually requires additional training, maybe some special pieces of equipment. And that's where the the specialty maintenance contractors will come in. So things that we cover would be portable machining. So a lot of machining activities are done in machine shops, but companies like us have equipment where we can do that activity at our owner's facility to save them time and save them costs from logistics. We do a lot of hydro testing. So if they're repairing some piping or pressure containing component, we'll hydro test it for them. There's a lot of um, bolting applications. So everything in a, in a facility has to be, uh, has to be bolted, uh, has to be buttoned up. We refer to it as, so there's a lot of different methods for bolting um, from a technical aspect that we per- perform as well. So in a sense, that's the type of service we provide. And then I guess for us as a, you know, the reason we exist today is we, we look at innovation. So we take, um, we take all that happens in our industry today and we, we try and figure out how we can do it different and how we can do it better. And who, who would your end customers be? Would it be the big oil and gas companies? Would it be the drilling companies or, or is it more than again, just oil and gas? It's the oil and gas company. So, you know, for instance, we, it would be your Suncor, um, CNRL, Synovus, Husky. Um, those are the type of, or Shell, those are the type of end users. Those are the oil companies. And for us, we work for the facility operators. Now, most cases in Canada, the facility operator and the owner is one and the same. So Suncor would own and operate their own facility. Um, same thing with Husky, same thing with Synovus in most cases. There, there's a few cases where they're not, but we tend to work for either the owner operator or the general contractor for that owner. And are you in uh, multiple countries or just operating in just Canada still? We're operating in just Canada. And why is that? Um, not, uh, it's not the long-term plan. So today our target market is Canada. We do have, you know, as part of something that we've, uh, I don't know if you've necessarily helped us with, but you've helped us with the concept of it. In our vivid vision, we, we're expanding into, uh, into the U.S. So we have 
three locations identified in the U.S. where we want to take our business. But for now, when we consider our target market for the size of our company and for how we're growing, we're focusing on Canada. And, and do you have competitors or partners in some of these other countries as well then that you would work with? Or do you kind of stay away from that and just focus solely on your backyard? We have a lot of partners globally that help us do business in our backyard, but we don't execute work in other countries through partners. Yeah, I'm wondering, like, are you their partner in Canada? Like, are there companies that are maybe doing this in the U.S. or, you know, down in Venezuela, big oil area? Are, are they kind of coming to you to do their Canadian operations for you or for them? We have one, we have one partner in the U.K. Um, that we were their Canadian uh, provider. Okay. And then how about outside of oil and gas? Are, are you outside of that industry? So we, we kind of, we look at it as not necessarily oil and gas, and we refer to oil and gas as, as it's our majority, but any really anything in energy. So we have in Ontario, for instance, we have a large nuclear uh, market where, where we work with uh, Ontario power generation. And the, in, in mining, there's, um, there's a, a little bit we do in mining around Alberta. And um, I would say that that's pretty much it. So we look at petrochemical facilities, mining facilities, um, and then really any any energy facility. Yeah, I was curious whether you were doing the, some of the mining as well. Cause it was um, I had a, a former client of mine in Edmonton that did a lot of work up in the oil sands. It was called Morgan Construction. And um, Pete Kiss would, was doing a lot in the oil and gas up in, in northern Alberta. But I was really pushing them uh, around 10 years ago to get into the mining industry just to diversify. And then I think when oil, you know, fell off a cliff, um, they started kind of getting into that space. Is that why you got into the mining space as well, just to diversify? Or was it just a, um, a customer who came along that, that needed what you guys already did? I would say it's a very similar activity from a maintenance perspective. So it, the, the needs of the oil and gas companies are very similar when it comes to the maintenance for the needs of the mining companies. So it wasn't necessarily a diversification, um, just maybe more of a, a shared market from, from a maintenance standpoint. Okay. So we're, we're obviously in a, in a different time right now in business. I mean, you've been there for seven or eight years, um, you know, growing yourself, growing the company. And then in, in the last, uh, really in the last eight or nine months, because of this whole COVID um, kind of flare up globally, has impacted a lot of businesses. Has it impacted your industry? It has. Um, it, it's impacted our industry uh, tremendously a lot, uh, tremendously, and not just the COVID. It, it seems that um, during COVID and uh, oil prices, that you know, both of them together ha- has created, you know, we refer to it a few times as a perfect storm for our industry. So mid, mid last year, um, or mid this year, I should say, it was last year for me because our fiscal um, 2021 has already started, but mid in the spring of 2020, we saw a really big downturn in our industry. And we were really slow for the spring and, um, and early summer. So it was a big impact on us. And why do you think it was slow? Was it just generally people were getting skittish or getting nervous? Or was it that, that customers were slowing down because their employees were nervous? What was the slowdown based on? The, a big part of the slowdown was based on... So in that period of time, our, our customers do what they call a, a turnaround or a shutdown. So they, they shut down their facility for a defined period of time and they perform maintenance. 
those are very large scale activities with thousands of people um, working very close to each other, hand in hand to, you know, execute. I've, I've heard one person refer to it as, you know, during a turnaround, you spend in cost, you spend the same amount as you would to buy a new facility, yet you don't get a new facility. So it's a very large project. Um, and understanding how to execute that with thousands of people working hand in hand, it, people just didn't know how to do it. So there was a lot of people deferring the projects um, and just maybe even pushing them off till the next year, just getting an extra year of operation out of their facility. So very few clients actually perform their shutdown this year. How come when, when the companies that you're outsourcing to are so large, why don't they perform these services on their own? What is it that you're bringing to the table? Is it that they don't need it constantly? You know, they only need your services once a month or something, or, um, or is it such a specialized skill that they, they don't have internally? Why do they outsource to someone like you? It's both of those things that you just mentioned. So the skill set is not the normal skill set. So having to not only train to get someone there, but then to keep them active, which is the, which is the biggest part. So for us, if we've got a, a crew of 20, what we refer to as technicians, um, we have 20 cross-trained technicians that we train in all of our different service lines. So if I have 14 different service lines, I'll set them up in groups. And then those groupings will get cross-training. So I can have a guy working at a Suncor facility doing hydro testing. Mm. And the next day he could be at a Synovus facility performing a bolting operation. Right. So because we can keep our people active, keep the training up to date, if, you know, kind of think of it as sharpening the saw, that the cost then to, you know, the, the owner can transfer that cost to, to a, a subcontractor versus having to, to keep that ongoing for themselves when it doesn't happen. It's not a regular activity. A lot of what we do is in response to a failure. So we're showing up to fix something that's broken. Makes sense. So then the fact that you can actually do that and deploy that person in that machinery in another way, they, the organization you're outsourcing to, whether it's Suncor or Husky, et cetera, wouldn't have that same need or they, that equipment would just be sitting idle more, more often. That's right. I'm curious on the the oil and gas sector, you know, I don't know exactly what oil prices went from, but let's say $80 a barrel down to $10 a barrel or something roughly. Um, I'm making that up, but you can give us more accurate numbers. Was it better for you when the oil industry tanked because it freed up labor and it brought, you know, salaries and, and compensation levels back to normal? It seemed like, I don't know when it was, 10 years ago, that salaries up in the oil sector, at least in Northern Canada, were out of control. Has that been good for you or has it been, are you indifferent to it? Yeah, that part really hasn't affected us. Um, when, uh, when the prices went down, the, the facility spend went down. So, and, and that's really what we rely on. So I guess one of the, one of the components, you know, when we talked about it earlier, when you mentioned our, our clients and who they were, so we look at clients who spend, you know, approximately or over a million in our maintenance sector. So when, when those, when that client, when the price went down, their spend in maintenance also went down. And that's really what affects us is not necessarily the salary wise and freeing up people. It was actually, it was their spend on maintenance activities that, that went down. Basically, you know, when they reviewed and reduced their budgets, all, all of their budgets were reduced. And that's where we feel the effects. How did you work around those budget reductions? 
We, um, so for us, it, it plays into our strength as a company in that everything we do is about adding value and reducing overall costs. So not necessarily price, but reducing costs. So we have um, one, of our, one of our uniques for our company, one of our three uniques for our company, we refer to it as optimized execution. And the big part of that is reducing a footprint. So if a normal contractor, normal specialty services contractor would execute a project with 60 people, um, our strategy, our go-to-market strategy is that I wanna do that project with 35. And by deploying the right people, the right cross-trained people, the right mix of equipment, I can do that with almost half. Most cases, I can do it with half, maybe a little bit more. Um, so that strategy for us is what we really rely on and, and push even harder in times like this is that we can, not only can we get your project completed, but we can get it complete for, for less cost. Okay. So I'm starting to wrap my head around your business a little bit right now as well. How do you know your customers' budgets? That was really intriguing when you said that you look for companies that have a million dollar maintenance budgets. How do you know what their maintenance budgets are? And how do you, how do you find those companies to target? So we don't know. It's not, I guess it's not a science, um, but we do have some algorithms that we use to help us identify it. So based on the, the number that we use is based on the oil the barrels of oil per day that a facility will produce for an oil and gas facility. So it's different for a mining facility, but we'll target oil and gas. So if they produce X amount of barrels per day, we've got historical data that we can then apply and say, okay, based on this, their budget in these areas must be, must be this much. So we, we kind of, we start with the amount of barrels per day and then we, we work it through um, just an algorithm really that, that our CEO kind of created and that spits out a fairly accurate number for what our clients spend on maintenance. All right. So that, that allows your targeting. How many provinces are you working in? We are working in every province, um, except for um, we're not currently working in Quebec. Because, is it because of the laws in Quebec or labor laws in Quebec? Why not? Yeah, it has to do with there's a little bit different labor laws um, in the... Uh, it's really, that, that's really what the, the most of it is. It's not, um, it's not somewhere where we've had success, I guess is kind of. So you don't have anything, sense. you don't have anything against French people like I do. Absolutely not. <laughs> my, my, and my thing against French people is I had to have a French tutor for two years while I was in high school. And I just got so frustrated with being told I had to learn French that I don't really not like French people, but I just tease, I joke about it now. Um, <laughs> it was just really hard for me to learn that. All right. So you've got operations across Canada. How many employees have you got? We've got 40 employees. How many? 40? And then are, are those some of your contractors that are out doing the work as well? Do you have subcontractors as well? Or are you managing the whole thing with 40 people? We, um, we manage our entire business with 40. However, when we do one of those projects like a shutdown or turnaround, we ramp up and we ramp up through union halls. So that's when we would um, put in a call. And if we need X amount of pipe fitter trades, X amount of machinist trades, we would execute that project. So We'll say just a couple of months ago, our our employee count would have been 100. And then we would, you know, we had 60 people on a project. And then once that project ended, they would disperse and we would, you know, we would use leverage that union relationship for the next project that we would execute. That makes sense. What's a union hall? 
Um, a union hall is, uh, I don't know if I could give you the exact definition, but it would be so for our trade. So again, like I mentioned, so we'd have a pipe fitter trade. I, I guess in, in Alberta, I would say there's metal trades. So those metal trades cover um, various activities and the union would represent those workers. So you would have um, a union hall would be a place where you could put in a dispatch. I would put on my form that I need X amount of workers with this skill set and they would provide me with uh, with those workers. Interesting. Okay. Makes a lot of sense in how you're able to scale up and scale back down as well, not having to have all these people full-time on staff. So are the 40 people that you have that are running the business, are they mostly sales, marketing, and project management? Or Exactly. That's right. With a group of core technicians that we keep for our day-to-day maintenance activities. And then you sub out everything except genius. That's right. I like it. All right. So how has the company scaled since you've been there? You've been there eight years now. What's the, what has the growth been like? Has it been um, ups and downs because of the oil industry itself? Or has it been you know, a little bit of consistent growth every year? It's been ups and downs. So I'll take us back to a little bit around 2014. Um, the oil industry in Alberta was booming and there was a lot of large scale construction projects. So we actually executed the project, um, 500 people uh, on site, our biggest year ever. Um, and the company itself, in terms of our, our staff and our core size, didn't really change. But our ability to, the amount of people we had employed and the revenue we had that year was the highest it's ever been. Since then, we kind of retracted a little bit. Um, now, going from 2018, to this year, we've had a steady increase in our revenue and our size, going from approximately 30 employees to 40 and from about 10 million to 15. All right. So the how do you manage the ups and downs internally? How do you manage the stress of all that? The ups and downs in uh, year over year, or yeah. I guess even the yeah, the year over year or even just internally within a year, like when you when you have those kinds of fluctuations, how do you guys manage the stress that that causes? It's um, so one of the, I guess one of the things that we do is we try and structure our business with as much flexibility as we can in that our indirect costs are not fixed. So we, you know, when we have a workforce that we can call on when we need to, that helps us keep our indirect costs low when we have a slow period. And that's really kind of the goal is to, um, is to keep those indirects flexible so when the revenue is not there, then we can scale down our indirects as well. Now, and your team, are, are the head office is in um, Newfoundland? No, our head office is in Edmonton. Okay, makes sense. So you're not managing the whole company from Newfoundland. How many people would be there and how many would be, would be Edmonton then? I am, I'm in Edmonton. So our, our offices across Canada, we have an office in Edmonton and an office in, in Hamilton, Ontario. Okay, got it. That makes sense. I was wondering how you were managing such a complex operation and, and doing it from such a reasonably remote place. I mean, you're makes sense that you're there. All right. So talk about your skills. What have you had to work on over the years and, and your growth in the organization? Well, I I started in this in with Innovator and really in this industry from a technical aspect. So I started as a design engineer. One of the one of the services that we offer, we re, we refer to it as online leak repair where a client would just develop a leak. So you can imagine if they're producing oil and one of their pipes springs a leak, then that's costing them money. So 
a very you know, important service that we do is we would design something to clamp onto that pipe to seal that leak and keep them operating. So they don't have to shut down to fix it. They don't have any environmental concerns and they're not losing profit by literally spilling it out onto the ground. So, so that service, that's a key service that we, that we provide. And my start in the industry was to design those fittings. So I, I was very technical um, engineer. And as I progressed in my career, I, had a, I was able to adapt to the practical a lot more than a lot of other engineers in our industry. So it, it was able to kind of, I was able to see a lot more on the operation side more so than just how things you know, should be designed and go together. And that gave me a unique perspective. From there, um, I really started to focus on, on the business side and a big part of it was focusing on leadership. So I, I spent a lot of time studying. I spent a lot of time um, reviewing, reviewing material from my CEO, listening to, you know, listening to, the, to the podcast and just really sharpening my skills from, from a leadership standpoint. I want to ask about that, but I want, I need to go back to this whole, you know, finding a leak. Cause I've always <laughs> been, I've always been curious when, and I forget what the movie was that I just watched recently about some guy like a hundred years ago in California building some oil thing. Uh, shoot. If I can remember what it was called. Um, but h- how do you know where the leak is in the pipes? Like, is it, how do you know? Like, do you just have to go through hundreds of miles to find it? Or is there some measurement that's happening every mile to show you that the flow has changed or something? Like what's going, how do you know? I would say all of the above. So, you know, I don't know. I I couldn't really say the percentage, but a large percentage of leaks, they're just visually, you just see them. Um, Yeah, but like you're out, you know, you got an oil pipe that's going from, you know, point A to point B. It could be hundreds of miles, right? Right. So... A lot of our work, um, most, I would say 90% of our work is not pipeline. When, okay. when, in, in the beginning, when, when I mentioned facilities, so operating facilities is where we focus. On a, on a pipeline scenario, they do a lot of um, aerial surveys, a lot of uh, thermal surveys as well. So if you, have, if you do a thermal survey of a pipeline mm. and you see a hotspot, mm. so that could be an indication of a number of different things. And you would, you would search and you could strip that location and identify if there was a leak. Um, much harder to do it on a pipeline scenario. And then their electronics, their, their measurements are going to tell them when they, they drop pressure or they drop flow and, and something's happening. Got it. But For you're, us from, we're in, a, we're in facilities. Yeah, we're, we're in facilities. So again, they would still have their, their surveys, their non-destructive examination surveys, corrosion surveys. A lot of those things help uncover these leaks. And then sometimes they're just visual. Um, steam is a big thing that leaks in these facilities. And you can imagine a, a big steam cloud when it's under pressure is um, quite noticeable. Got it. That makes sense. All right. The movie, the movie just came to me as well. It was called There Will Be Blood. And it's a, if you haven't seen it, it's a fantastic movie about the oil industry 100 years ago. Okay. All right. So, so you saw some of the operational side of the business more than others did. What was it that was allowing you to see that? What, what was kind of popping up that allowed you to understand it and get it? Did you grow up around business or did you just have those insights and you were, you know, weren't just stuck in your role? I think the biggest part for me was my transition from, so when I first, I mentioned when I first moved to Alberta from Newfoundland, 
I, I worked in, I worked in um, the design side of the business. So strictly engineering. When I moved back East, the, the office that closed, I was, I was running that office. So there's the office manager and I was doing the design work and planning the operational activity. And it just really, I really picked it up really fast as um, I guess the right way to say it is that I just adapted to it really quickly or I gravitated towards it really quickly. It wasn't a, it wasn't a struggle for me that the planning activity, the, the hands-on approach, and it might have a lot to do with starting as a, um, as a technologist. So the technical college that I graduated, a mechanical technologist versus a, a mechanical engineer, you really emphasize the operational side just as much as the, as the design side. Well, that's interesting. So you had some exposure to it in the training as well. Then, do you think that there's a? Um, are you grooming people internally to to go into the management roles, or are you hiring them externally and bringing them in? We're doing both. Um, we are grooming internally, and our leadership team is um, has actually changed quite a bit over the last few years. And two of the newest members to our leadership team were groomed internally. I would think that because you've got the high technical side of the business that internal would be would be better is that true or do you do you, do you feel that way I, I do feel that way but not necessarily because of the high technical side there's there's other companies that offer similar services what's really great about the internal um, grooming for us is the approach that we take and that that cross training and reduced footprint is really um, a difference maker for us compared to how other people would look at the technology you know, for instance, executing the same project, a goal of company B could be, I'm going to put as many people on that project as I can, because, you know, that's more revenue for me. Whereas for us, we want to do it in the least amount of people as possible. So it's, it's a different mindset. And it really helps when you're immersed in that mindset. So do you, do you run like a, a mini P&L on every project then just to understand what your contribution margin is or gross margins on every project? Do you manage the business that way? We do. How, that's got to be helpful in doing it that way. How are you going to scale? Are you going to do acquisitions? Or are you going to continue to grow organically? Any thoughts around that? Uh, yes, and it's both. So we're going to continue to scale, um, to grow, sorry. We're going to continue to grow organically. So we have, kind of a, a plan set out for what that's going to look like between, you know, right. So we're, we're going from 15, I'm going to go from 15 to 50, you know, 50 to 200 and to hit all those milestones, there's, there's a lot of organic growth. There's geographic location changes, but there's a lot acquisitions in there as well. Yeah. There's gotta be some opportunities to do acquisitions. I would think where there's either companies that are smaller or not as well managed or just getting tired of the industry that you guys could pick up um, not only the talent, but I think just the entry point into the customers, right? Yeah. Well, we look, you know, there's, there's kind of um, a specific set and I don't think that's unique to us. We, we look for somebody who's established in a, in a, in a region that we want to be in. So that would be one of the first things we look at. So if we want to go to Northern BC, um, who's there right now and who's got a, you know, who's got a good customer base. And then we look at what services they offer and we say, and we think, you know, do we offer that service or are they complementary to our service? Could we add on, you know, for what we're doing, for what they're doing, can we add on or vice versa? If we were to come in and execute 50%, would they be able to, 
you know, to finish it and, and take it to completion. So those are really the areas that we look for when we, we think about a good acquisition. And any desire to go into the, the U.S. market or any global markets at all? Uh, yeah, very, very big desire to go into U.S. We've got a few locations identified. And the partner that I mentioned that we use a global partner in the U.K., they also have a location in the U.S. So we're their Canadian, um, their Canadian representation and they operate themselves in the U.S. So that's a relationship that we also need to explore and we're looking forward to exploring. Cool. Talk about, about you and your role as COO now for, for a bit. Where do you think you've struggled over the years as a COO and, and maybe where have you failed as a COO? Any, any lessons from, from any failure or struggles you've had? Hmm. It's a good question. So some of the areas that I think that I've struggled has been, I refer to it as playing it safe, but I think my CEO mm-hmm. would just tell me that, you know, sometimes I just implementation is slow. So some of the things that, you know, that I find is we have a, we have a new plan, a new idea, and we need to implement that across the company. So previously, not having a system for implementation has really slowed down and hampered our effort to get things across the line. So we've got a new great idea from the visionary, from the CEO, and all right, let's do it. We'll start it. And then maybe, you know, six months in, it, it dies off. And one of the, Probably the biggest thing that I've learned is that having those implementation systems in place can really make the difference there. For sure. When, when, he's, when the CEO is pointing out to you areas that he's either struggling with for you or frustrated with, how do you guys work that relationship out? I mean, there's, there's got to be normal frustrations that happen in every business relationship. How do you guys work through together as CEO, COO? Currently, we're in a very good place together from, you know, one of the tools that we use, Cameron, and, and you have one that, um, that, that I know I've used from, from you as well, which is that just that same page tool. Mm. So the, the first part, I think, is as long as you and the CEO are on the same page um, and you go through that exercise and you look at vision and, you know, you look at all the different parts of your business. And if you're on the same page, then the frustrations are smaller and they're easier to create a solution. So if he's expression, so we do, you know, we do our, our weekly leadership meeting and then a weekly one-on-one where it's just us. And we can easily, op- we can openly talk about those frustrations we have because we know we're on the same page. And it's probably just something minor that's preventing, you know, that one thing from happening. Not, you know, not a major not a major issue. And, th- and that's really how we can deal with them so effectively. Yeah, that's a critical point, actually, that whole same page. And, and that's you being on the same page with, with the CEO's vision and the CEO being on the same page with your operating plan. If you're both working from that song sheet together, then you can kind of work through any of the frustrations because you're at least both aligned. Exactly. So you've got your weekly leadership team meeting. What's that look like? That's, um, it's, well, it's very structured. It, it is a EOS L10 leadership meeting is, is what we do. So we operate, uh, uh, you know, the entrepreneurial operating system. We've adopted that. We've been running it for almost two years now. Uh, it's really transformed a lot of areas of our business where we struggled previously. Mm. And the, the leadership meeting is 90 minutes where we do a positive focus which is something that we've adopted even before EOS. Uh, the power of 
starting meetings with positive focus, it can't be understated. I, I think it's a, it's a great way to begin any meeting. Um, we go through, we go through our introductions or our, sorry, our positive focus. We, we talk about our measurables. So we have a, a scorecard of 13 measurables in our business. And, and those are the measurables that, you know, the saying or the idea is that if you're on a desert island and you only had these set criteria, you would know your business is okay. So for us, we have 13. Um, we go through all those measurables. We look at our to-do list and we talk about some company headlines. We, we review our rocks, our priorities, and then we jump into our issues. And you follow that same L10 meeting that just works well. Did you have a, an implementer? Did you have a, an EOS implementer help you with EOS or did you self-implement as a company? We have an implementer. And how's that been working? Uh, it's been amazing. Uh, he's, uh, he's a really great implementer. And it's, it works for, for two points, I think. His, um, the, the quarterly and annual workshops, having those structured, I think is a great idea regardless if you're EOS company or whatever process you're following. Having that outside facilitation, especially on an annual basis, it really helps take the burden off an individual to host a meeting and contribute to the meeting. So having an implementer really helps there. And then there's a sense of accountability. So for us, we've had different leadership teams and different meeting cadences that never worked out. With our L10, we've never missed one. So it's been two years, we've never missed an L10. And part of that is just knowing we have that integrator and it's an accountability partner and accountability piece that really helps. Yeah, that's awesome. Talk about your one-on-one -on -one meeting then that you have with the CEO. What's the structure of that? Um, the the one-on-one -on -one meeting is really about staying on the same page. So we know we're on the same page and then we'll each bring three items that we want to discuss with the others. So to, usually I start with my three and I'll, I'll usually present it like, here's, here's the topic um, and this is what I'm looking for. So I'm not, you know, most cases I'm not looking for an answer. I'm not looking for a solution. I'm just maybe presenting it as an FYI, or in some cases I am looking for a little bit of advice. So I'll present my three topics and then he'll present his back. But what we do before the meeting is we organize them on a impact filter or in your case, a decision filter that really helps us get clear and lets the other person know what we're going to talk about going in. So a quick five minute exercise to jot down the idea. So we use, um, we have uh, inside of our operating system or our CRM, we have an impact filter built in. We can both fill it out and mm. then it sits as the meeting plan. I love that you're, you're, you're kind of mentioning different terminology that some of the listeners might know and some may not, but um, the impact filter is just a tool from strategic coach. And then the L 10 meetings and your one-on-ones and same page are, are EOS traction. It's great that you guys have adopted these different forms of, um, of systems and kind of iterated them to make, make them your own. It, it, it's certainly helping you scale. So if we were to, if we were to go back to, uh, to a question when you were just kind of graduating college and you're getting ready to start off on your career, what advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true today? Hmm. I would say that one of the, um, one of the things that I, I, I would, and it's funny that, you know, when I, when I think about this, it's a lot of advice that I give people in my organization today. And it's really about where and how you focus your time 
and what's important to you. So in our industry, and it's going to be, I'm sure it's, it's not just in our industry. I shouldn't say that because this is common throughout, throughout business is how much time we tend to spend in that urgent and um, in that Q, in that Q2 quadrant two. So the one that's, or, or the one that's urgent and, you know, the, and time sensitive, it's like that emergency whirlwind and realizing that what's in front of you is not always the most important or that emergency is not always the most important thing. Taking the time to invest in yourself and invest in the, in the process that's going to help you fix those emergencies for the long term, and not having the mindset that, you know, Oh, I can't fix this because I don't have the time to do it. So really understanding about how to focus your time into the quadrant where you're doing what's important, but not urgent. And, that would be the biggest piece of advice. Yeah, and that's that's right out of Stephen Covey's um, highly effective people book from from like twenty five years ago. Still one of the probably the top leadership books out there. Quadrant two is working on the high impact, low urgency items, which we tend to push aside because of the urgent. So you're you're right. I mean, working on yourself, working on your skills, working on leadership development for your company, um, working on the business instead of in the business, right? Absolutely. And if I could, maybe I give you a little bit of evolution of our company on, on that side. So yeah. I mentioned a little bit that, you know, we, we, in the past, we might've struggled with implementation and needing a system to do that. So we've got influences in our company from Stephen Covey, whether it's seven habits or 40 X, we take a lot, we took a lot of influence from that. And then we would go through management exercises where we would say, okay, this year or going forward, we're going to plan all our rocks in accordance with 40X. And we're going to do all our training in accordance with seven habits. And we would do that. And then we take more inspiration from things like Jim Collins. And um, we, so Jim Collins book on the um, good to great. Sorry, I was, I was trying to blank there. Okay. Um, how to be a great, how to be a great boss. OKRs. Like there's so many of these resource materials that we, we gravitated to, we want to use and we see the value, but we struggled in implementing them. And that's where EOS for us brought it all together. So we never had, so and what I mean by that is we never had to leave anything behind. What we learned in Seven Habits, what we learned in Good to Great, what we, what we learned in 40X, EOS never meant we left any of that behind. We got to bring it with us, but EOS allowed us to organize it so it was at our fingertips and whether that's on the VTO or the L10. And that's been the biggest success I feel um, for our company. Yeah. I love the simplicity of traction of EOS and it allows you to take all the ideas of the four disciplines of execution and good to great and scaling up and all these other amazing systems, but the simplicity of traction of EOS allowing people to put that, put the systems into the company, which is great. Chris Coombs, the COO for Innovator Industrial Services. Thanks very much for sharing with us on the Second in Command podcast. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.